I'm not positive where you're up to. Do you guys did what? First and eight? And Chronicles 21. Okay, so we're into nine then, ready? We're ready for nine. Okay. Um, now, last week when I was here, I, can I pray first? Because I feel really frustrated. Okay, I'm so mad at myself. Father God, thank you so much that you're a good God and that even in really silly things like oversleeping, Father, there's just the grace that you give to us. And I ask for that right now. And um, and I beg the pardon of all these lovely ladies who were faithfully here on time. And so, Father, I just ask that you would now clear my mind so that I can speak by the power of your Holy Spirit and um, have a clarity of thinking and a, and a flow of thought that, Father, only you can do through me. And I know that. So I ask you, Father, to be the leader of this this morning. Help us to um, just be able to really see the things that you want us to see in all this. It's, there's so much technicality to reading history and to looking at these kings and their lives and the events that took place. Father, there is a lesson that you want for us to learn in this, and I, I'm sad to say to many of us, including myself, it requires a great deal of discipline to draw these things out, to really see uh, these bigger truths which are so concrete for our life, Father. But I know you want us to have them. You did not record these things for absolutely no reason at all. You did it, Father, because you want us to learn from our past, to learn and to know the things that you've done, how great you are, what a good God you are, how patient, how, um, how you provide and protect and uh, how sovereign you are over all things, not just the things of the land of Israel, but, Father, the entire earth. You are king of the whole earth. And, Father, we thank you that you show these things to us through these uh, storylines. And let us, Father, this morning just delight in the, in the little nuggets of truth that you show to us and how you show us in each individual life that you are also present. You're not only there in the big, the big national things, but you are there, Father, also in the individual person's life. And that is a truth, Father, that is still true today that you are moving and working in our nation, in this world, that is such a mess as we watch the news. But, Father, you are also in every single life here. You are doing a work in these families and in, um, in the hearts and minds of each of these individual students, and I praise you for that. Father, now won't you just be with us now and speak and teach and continue to uh, just pour out your anointing on each one of us today. We praise you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you. I feel better. <laughs> um, okay, I there were so many things I kind of considered doing. Did you all talk about the character of um, that both of the Jorams that you did work on this week? Remember one of the days, I think it was day two or three, she asked you to go back and look at Jehoram and say, what did you see about his character through the things that you witnessed him doing? Now, last week, we looked at God and did that. Remember the big, length, lengthy conversation we had about who God is and looked at all the things that he was doing in the people of Israel and in their nation at that time. And uh, just to kind of do what we call an analytical observation of who God is and what he's doing for that nation, right? So this week, she, she actually asked us to do that same type of thing, only on the, one of the individual kings. And I think the, 
the interesting thing is, is that when you look at people in these storylines is how there sometimes to, seems to be a struggle of who's going to win out, you know, in, in the things that you do. Have you ever heard that saying, um, um, basically you are what you eat sort of thing? You, but people can be kind of a mixture of things. Sometimes they do good things and sometimes they do bad things. If there isn't one that's the most confusing of all, it's got to be a Solomon story. You know, where you see sometimes he did great things and he, he built the temple for Pete's sake, right? He wrote all these lovely scriptures under inspiration of God for us. They're divinely and wholly inspired. And yet at the same time, then what else did he do, right? So tell me some of the things that you can recall about Joram and his life. Um... Yeah, that's always the question. Which Joram? Hold on. Yes, Joram of Judah is the one that she asked us to look at. I don't know about you guys, but I did both of them. Um, just because once I got rolling, and of course that took me a lot of extra time. But it was just so good that I couldn't stop. Okay, so it's on page two, uh, or day two, page 41 of your homework. Um. Yes, I had to think, think it through too and for a second, which one it is. Yes. Okay, so tell me what did you, just, just in generality, we have to be real super specific. I want to know what did you learn about, his, about who this man was? Okay, so what does that tell you about his heart? Okay, so evil. You know, in a way, though, you've got to stop and say, okay, what do I mean by that makes him evil? We know that ultimately, before the eyes of God, this makes him evil. But what does this tell you about who he was as a man? He's a leader of a nation, and what is he doing? First of all, he simply does not have a relationship with God. Now, is that because he didn't have opportunity to know God? consider his father, right? Wasn't that one of the things we looked back? We looked back at his grandfather and his father in some scripture verses, right? Who was his grandfather and father? Just named Asa and Jehoshaphat. Good King Jehoshaphat, for Pete's sake. His own daddy, who he would have known and been raised under. And, and by the way, he was a co-regent with him for several years. Did you guys pick up on that? Did you talk about that? That's very interesting to me because some of these datings, and this is another reason I have, I've warned you in the past about trying to pin down the dating on, okay, well, it says this in one place, but it says this in another. It looks like it's a contradiction, right? Well, he began reigning in this year here, but he began reigning in that year there. What's going on, right? The issue is sometimes they were, there was co-regency, sometimes, um, sometimes they, they, came, they came up and they worked either underneath their father where their father was away and they weren't really fully the king yet, but they did become the king, or sometimes they actually co-ruled together. I mean, there's all these complications that come in, and so sometimes it depends on which one they're using as their reference when they give you a dating. And, you know, we can only guess and try to iron it out by saying, okay, well, he must have meant this and not this. And that's if you're only crazy enough to be want to be that technical about knowing all that, right? I, you know, I'm going, I know that he, he was the son of Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. And so what do you think good king Jehoshaphat's um, witness or testimony was to his son? Mostly good, yes? Everybody had an evil, but this guy had an evil. 
There you go. That's, you know, what's very interesting? We didn't really look at it from that perspective either, did we? When you did your list on him, did you ever kind of drop in some of your points about the mom? We looked at cross-references about dad, but did you think about mom? Who was his mom? Ahab's daughter. Now we think it's Jezebel's daughter. I like putting it that way best, don't you? That was Jezebel's daughter. Now, I don't know if you guys all have daughters, but if you have a daughter, usually daughters are very much like who? Their mothers, generally. And that's not always the case. But on the whole, you can say that usually if you meet the mom, you've met the daughter. So here we have Jehoz, uh, uh, Joram, and you're saying that he's an evil king. But what else did he do besides building the high places? And, and my question, I guess, or where I started, I better go back to it, is why do you think he built the high places? Okay, well, he wasn't worshiping God, so he was, do you know, do you know for sure that he was actually worshiping the other gods? Yes, very much so. Okay, do you, how many of you know people in um, in your life or in leadership around the world that you know their parent is a true worshiper, whether it's good or bad, however, whatever you want to think of it, and they have a child who also maybe attends, but are, does that necessarily mean that they're a worshiper of that thing? Okay, and I'm not and I'm not bringing this up to say oh he wasn't. What I'm bringing it up to say is, are there any other motivations for building high places then because you really love that God and want to worship him. There you go. Mar Martha nailed it. Sometimes there's also just simply the motivation of the pressure of the people at the time. So there's the, one of the things I noticed on your list, I'm missing it. Oh, I wish it were still there. But these, but what was going on with the people at the time is they were all worshiping in all these varieties of ways. Do we have that going on in our nation today? Okay. So when you have a king, okay, have you ever seen in current history a situation where we have a president who's trying to please all the religions of the world at the same time? Come on, guys, think, think, think. Have you been, how many of you guys kind of get online or, or politically a little bit astute to things like this? How many of you have seen some of these prayer conferences sometimes when they all come together and how many different religions are brought into the same room? Right? And they're all trying, they're trying to please this group. They're trying to appease this group, trying to appease this group. They bring them all together. So they have kind of a multicultural mishimashi and what they call prayer. And I call just sad, you know. And I'm like, I think that in some ways, maybe Joram, when he built the high places, it could have been just political pressure. He was trying to please all the people as well. His dad had gone against the, the, the flow, against the rub, right? And it stood his ground and said, no, we will worship God Almighty, the Lord God of Israel. We will worship him only. And he probably watched his dad get a lot of pushback on that through the years, right? So when he came in and he took over, so what does he do? He just kind of pulls back. And yes, it meant that his heart was not for God, right? But also, it could be that it wasn't so much that he was fervent for some other religion, but that he simply wanted to be a people pleaser. He was a politician. He wanted to make everybody happy. And so he just stepped back and allowed that kind of thing to happen. That could be another motivation. I'm not saying that it positively is. I'm just saying it's another way of thinking of it. And in our world today, do we see that? 
sometimes the president of our country is not necessarily a Christian, but, but um, he wants to please them, so he tries to say all the right things. Or maybe he's not... He's absolutely not a Christian, but he, he, and he wants to please the other side of things. So he's up there trying to politically balance this. So we see that with Joram in here. It seems like he was trying to make a lot of people happy, not standing on what he had been taught by his father, but now he was being greatly influenced. And one of the things we absolutely know is when he married um, the daughter of Ahab, what, what does the scripture tell us happened to him? And he started, well, he started, his activities totally changed. He began to do all the things he should not be doing, right? Murder is just like such an overt sin. It's not like that's a, oops, I said a bad word. You know, I stubbed my toe and something came out of my mouth that shouldn't have. No, this was like really overt sin. So deep down in this man's heart, there was a darkness that he did not have the light of God in him, and he had no, no desire to lead his people in righteousness. So he marries this woman from another country. And the interesting thing to me is, who allowed him to get married? His daddy. Now, here's another dilemma. In our family lives today, do we see sometimes families, moms and dads, who, I know I can see a lot of eyes rolling, boy. This, this one certainly is a tough one, isn't it, for families. When you've got a child who wants to marry an unbeliever and you, either you can't stop it or you just throw up your hand and say, okay, fine, and then here we go. So this, this is, the interesting thing is to listen or to kind of look beyond the king and the most obvious things and consider the human story behind this of the family dilemma that must have been going on here. Jehoshaphat, who loves the Lord. He knows what his son should be doing. And now he comes to, to dad and dad says, and he says, dad, I'm going to marry this woman, right? Or maybe dad was in on it. It was very common in that time to make this political thing, this political move. Solomon did it all the way through. They all did it. So we see a heart that's not there. We see maybe social pressures going on. We see family dynamics that show that, that there's this rift going on. I'm sure, did you guys bring up the fact that just because daddy's a Christian doesn't make uh, the children Christian automatically? Okay, right. So we have all, all this going on in, in this delightful drama that we're looking at here. Um, he became king. He, he did evil in the sight of the Lord is the bottom line. That's what God says of him. What else? What, okay, let, let me do this. What happened as a result of that? He was doing evil, things like killing brothers, right, and so forth, which... Wow. Okay. Clue number one in your life. If you start having opposition of enemies attacking you, what might that, might that be a clue to? Might. Something may be askew in your personal walk with God. When you are in the context of this particular writing, because it's written historically under the umbrella of the covenant of Israel, right? Obey, and I will bless you. Disobey, and I will curse you. When you as king begin to get uh, Edom and the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabs and the whoever else is in there start begin to take uh, coming against you, and not only that, but begin to take away the land that you had already possessed, what should that be clue number one to? 
Because what is it when, when Israel begins to lose land, what is that an indication? Judgment. judgment. That is an indication of the judgment of God on them. So that's what we see going on here. So we have a man who's doing evil, knows the right thing, but doesn't do it. Um, he, he, his evil is so intense that he goes to the point of killing his brothers. Um, we see, um, let me think here. Yes, he was the one that killed all his brothers. I see it now on my list. Um, so he has this sickness that you all have talked about. Now, the same thing, let's flip over to Jehoram. I found this one even more tantalizing. Um, and you probably did not do this on your homework because you weren't asked to. But his list is similar, in, except that, of course, his example and his family was not good, was it? I mean, who was his dad? Ahab. Okay, come on, it's not that hard. Ahab. So Ahab had this, his son Joram also. And so all for him and his family dynamics and the way that he grew up was all this evil stuff was represented to him. So in some ways, it, it might be easier for us to even excuse him a little bit, right? Because it was what's demonstrated to him. It's what he grew up seeing and witnessing. And so he did this. So he did evil. He put... Oh, um, I found it interesting. Okay, so his dad, first one, he's connected back to Omri. I just wanted to point that out. Omri, down to Ahab, correct? Did you guys figure that out? I found a really cool chart thing on my computer that would put these in line for me, and they showed them to me so that I could do a visual with them. It was very helpful. Um, so he was warring. What, what do you remember else about him? Yes. Well, back in chapter, okay, let me do it this way. Starting in chapter 3, when you go back to chapter 3 in 2 Kings, Jehoram, he's the son of Ahab, it tells you up front he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But it says, interesting, that he had put away the sacred pillar of Baal his, that his father had made. Interesting. Now think of the contrast between that and the Joram of, of Judah. Did you pick up on that? Come on, guys. I mean, I thought, that for me, that was like, a what? I had to double, I'm still even doing it. I'm still double looking at my list here going, now, wait a minute. This is the wrong guy. It seems like the guy whose influence is, Christi is godliness. I call it Christian, but godliness. You would think that he'd be the one that would at least do same things partly right, correct? But yet, he's the one that seems to do at least a little bit right, which I think is interesting. So he had put away the pillar, the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. But he also clung to the sins of uh, uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, right? Okay. Um, so, however, Elisha does rebuke him, says he's going to die. And you just talked about this horrible disease he died of, right? Now, when he has this um, judgment against him, then what does God do? He brings enemies against him, just like he did with the other kingdom. Now, Samaria was having this huge famine, right? 
He walks through, he sees these things happen. Do you remember the story of the woman who t gave him a storyline about cooking her child and the other woman was going to cook his child the next day and she's whining because the other woman's now reneged after she's killed her son and ate it or her child and ate it. Um, so this nation was undergoing this, this horrific judgment from God. What, though, however, was Joram's response? Who did he blame? Elisha and God. So the, actually within the text, it actually says that he, he did not. And then Elisha comes to him with the, pro, the prophecy, remember back? And he says, there's going to be bread in, at, the, at the gate by morning, you know, and, and he doesn't believe him. And so there's that whole story of the lepers who go out to the, to the camp where the Arameans have been camping, and they find that they had ran away, basically. And so there's all that storyline. Well, in the end, he gets proven to be wrong. But interesting is he was at least persuadable. Do you remember when the servants came to him, and he starts saying, no, I'll bet it's a trap. Let's not go, right? But then his, his servants were able to at least persuade him, and they went and looked, and sure enough, God had done exactly as he said. So then what's funny is a little bit later, you find a storyline of the Shunammite woman. The Shunammite woman get, gets ta told him by Elisha's servant Gezi, right? And Gehazi, rather. And Gehazi is telling him about this woman and how the son was raised from the dead. And lo and behold, at that particular moment, in walks this woman, the Shunammite woman. And she wants to have her land back because it's been possessed while she was away during the famine, correct? Did you all line up when that actually probably happened? Was it the same time when Elijah or Elisha had come back? Remember when he, he purified the pot of porridge that was poisoned? We had talked about this, Carol, you and I talked about this, where you said, well, well, Gezi has got leprosy now. Why is he in the court? Well, probably now that I've done some tracking on this, this probably happened before that. So Gezi was probably still clean and was serving for some reason in the court that particular day. And um, it was before the time when he had judgment passed on him, probably. That's what the timeline shows when you line it up. So I thought that was interesting. Oh, thank goodness for commentaries who've got more time than we do to do all this. But, but because this woman was returning, and why was she returning? There had been famine in the land, and why was she returning? The, the famine was beginning to lift, just like the storyline of Elisha when he came back, and the famine had begun to lift, but the, the food was scarce, but it was improving, but they had made a pot of stew, and it had become poisoned by something, and so he, he did a miracle to make the pot of stew good so that they could eat it. Um, so they're saying that the, these two storylines probably happened about the same time. So when it comes to Jehoram, this woman now walks in. Gezi has been talking to the king and telling him about these great miracles Elisha had done. Remember, Gehazi, by the way, was the one who ran ahead with the staff and laid it on the little boy's face, right? Okay, so he's telling that story, and in comes this woman. Oh, king, sir king, this is her. This is the woman I was telling you about. And what, is, what does this evil Jehoram do, this evil man who whose daddy is Ahab, who his entire life has been nothing but pagan worship, what does he do for the Shunammite woman? Now, tell me, he does this wonderful, nice thing. He restores the land. And not only does he restore the land, what else did he do? 
restore everything and everything that she would have lost during the years she was away. Unbelievable kindness and unbelievable righteous behavior of this particular king who is the son of Ahab. Did we see any of those stories when we looked at Jehoram, king of Judah? Was anything recorded that showed any glimmer of light or kindness or righteous thinking in him? Not one record in Jehoram, king of Judah. But Jehoram, king of Israel, whose daddy is Ahab, he turns to this Shunammite woman and says, restores everything. And just before that, we have seen him say, remove all the Baal uh, worship things. So he had said, put away the sacred pillar of Baal and, and his fa- that his father had ma- made. Now, his error was he didn't go far enough. He, went, he, he improved, but he didn't go all the way, right? But Jehoram, king of Judah, he didn't even make any efforts. He started in a more righteous position with training, and he took like at least three steps back, right, in the way that he was. I just thought that looking at the way that these two men were affected by their family and how that influences their, their faith walk with God, it, it can so relate in our lives today. Do you know people who have every opportunity to know God and love God and have that exposure in their life? And, and they absolutely are mess. They're just a mess. They're, they, they are far from God. They're living their lives uh, doing things that you, you don't even want to talk about, maybe, um, and are just such a disappointment to the heart of their mom or their dad who love the Lord. Yet on the other hand, you find out there's another person who's whose mom and dad are themselves what we would call the scum of the earth, right? <laughs> they're they're ir- irreparable minds and their, uh, their behaviors are horrible and this is how they raise their children. And what comes up out of that family? A pastor, right? Or, or, or somebody who puts their life into full-time missions work or, I mean, so what are we learning as we look at the storyline of ancient history here? Okay, people have, both of these kings had a choice on how they wanted to live and think and live, correct? Both of these kings had opportunity to know God. Was there no opportunity in Israel to know God? Do you remember one of the times when, um, um, I I can't remember which king it was, he had sent his people to go and say, will I recover from this is from this and Elijah came in and intervened and said is there no God in Israel for you to ask of this because you have not asked it of God you will die from your illness you will not recover right so opportunity 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 we we you and I today we are no different our family lives are no different our the political world around us really is no different we feel like it's different because it's happening to us. <laughs> it feels heavier or more burdened in some ways. The storylines that they picked out, however, are glimpses into the humanity of these men, their individual hearts, and the oppor- but the storylines also show us the opportunities that each one of them had. They had an opportunity. They, they did know what could be chosen from. They knew whether they could. They knew that about God, the God of Israel. 
they had that opportunity to follow him, but they didn't. And yet, the, to me, the funny thing was when I looked at it carefully, I saw the one who grew up in the house of Ahab actually had more glimmers of light and goodness in him than the one who grew up in the house of Jehoshaphat who walked faithfully with God. Now, stop and ponder on your personal family. Do you feel a little bit better <laughs> about the fact that you personally, mom and dad, are not responsible for how your children go? You, the part that you are responsible for is to teach them in the way that they shall go so that when they are old, hopefully, they will not depart from it. Because that's a proverb, not a promise. It's a wise saying. That's the only instruction given to parents is the training. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I think about Jehoshaphat, this godly man who now stands in the presence of God, probably, right, who loved the Lord and did right in his sight according to God's word. And now there he stands in heaven. Is he standing before God being held accountable for how his children turned out? Is he? What is he being held accountable for? for what he did in his own life to train that child. I think about David. Do you remember early, early in this study when we were first looking at David? David, one of the things he did is even from his deathbed, he was trying to instruct Solomon to seek the wisdom of God above all things, right? So he, this was a dad who, although he himself did not do everything right, but yet he humbly understood where wisdom came from and that this this job this role in life that was being they were being both blessed with and burdened with to be a leader over God's people that the only way you're going to lead effectively is if you rely upon God for that wisdom and strength yesterday in our pastor sermon he he gave us a really neat contrast between um I think it was Moses and um Solomon where he said when Moses went before God, he asked God for something too, but it, it wasn't wisdom. But what it, do you, does anybody remember? He, well, yeah, that's another time. Yes, he wanted to see God face to face. He did ask for that. You're right. But when, when he first was being uh, sent on this mission to lead the people out, he asked of God, God, if you don't go with us, then we will not go. But, you, but he wanted God with him. And that was the sermon was God with us. And I thought, what a neat, did you guys notice that in the sermon yesterday? When uh, the contrast between what um, Solomon asked and what Moses asked. Moses said, God, that you be with me. And I just thought that was so cool. It's not that one's right, one's wrong. I'm just saying that, that it just showed this comparison of two, key, two leaders who were before, before the Lord, had an opportunity to petition God for anything, anything at all. And what did Moses said? God, if you be with me, and if you don't go with me, then we shall not go. And I thought, what, a, what an amazing story that is. And here we have these men. They could have asked from God anything. And would God have given it? Think back to the beginning of this storyline with Jer Jer Jeroboam. 
When Jeroboam, who was not of the bloodline of David, but because of Solomon's sin, God was ripping ten parts of this kingdom from his hand. And he said to him, to Jeroboam, I am going to give you ten parts of this kingdom. And then what did he promise him? He almost, it's not exactly the same promise, but it's very similar to what he promised David. He said, I will give you an enduring kingdom if you will follow me, if you will, if you will follow in my ways. But of course, when we did that timeline recently, we went back and we looked. We said, no, what did he do? Immediately, he builds these two golden calves and begins to establish his own worship system. Choices, Right. But we personally, each one of us individually, we are responsible for our own personal choices. When we stand before God the Father, we are going to be responsible for not whether our children or our grandchildren, right, come to know God and obey him, but whether or not we, we taught it to them. Very good. No, absolutely, yeah, and you're not responsible for the choices that your parents have made. Even though you may be still praying fervently for your parents that they would come into faith, it doesn't mean that you are responsible if they don't, right? I just, I think when you look at these character analysis, which is what she asked us to do, is to slow down and do just a, an observation of the character of these two men. What an interesting contrast between them. I found that at the end, I had a, a more tender man in the king of Israel and who was the son of Ahab than I did in the man who was the son of Jehoshaphat who loved God. Interesting. But both did evil in the eyes of the Lord and both had their judgments. And in both cases, when we pull back now to look at the history of Israel and, the, and under the umbrella of the covenant, blessings and cursings, he said to each of them, and if you... Uh, in that long lengthy, in, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where he spells it out and says, if you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'm going to do this. Do you remember the spelling out of the negatives? The positives were about like this big because it kind of encompassed your whole life is just going to be blessed by the Lord. But the next one, he went into great detail. Among them, what were some of the details that he, God said, I will do to your nation and to you if you do not follow me? Huh? Okay, for one thing, I'm going to scatter you. And I will also even dispossess you from off of the land, correct? As another potential. And we do see that coming down the pike here, huh? Okay, now that's because one of the things he said is, I'm going to bring enemies against you. If you're not following me, one of my disciplines, God said to Israel, is going to be that I'm going to begin to bring enemies against you. So what should have gone through their little pea brains up here. When Moab starts to come against them, the Philistines start coming against them. They start losing land. What should have happened? Oh, whoops, I'm sinning. But what, did you, but what did Joram do when he was walking through the streets and the woman's telling him about cannibalism of his sons, of, their, of her son? What did he... God did this, and if and far be it from me if Elisha is still alive at the end of this day. Remember? His response was not to be introspective. So, you know, I think of my personal life sometimes, and I think, Lord, you know, I, I, we are absolutely not advocating that disease does not happen to a good person who loves the Lord, because it certainly does. But, but 
What can we, however, not afford to do is to say, but it never happens. So no disease or illness or calamities or, or frustrations that are going on in my life, none of them mean anything. Well, how are we going to define what, what matters, what, what the real picture is that's going on? What should Jor Joram done when he started having these uh, other kingdoms start coming against him? Yeah, he should have stopped and sought the Lord. Do you remember Jehoshaphat when he was going to go against the enemies? What did he say to Ahab? Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we can talk to about this? If we have an enemy that we have to battle, this must be the, um, the, this is in God's hand. God is the one that orchestrates. He moves kings and kingdoms. I mean, for Pete's sake, he can, he can in the heavens take the clouds and the sky and move a wind in this way and totally wipe something out by a tornado or a terrible uh, downpour of rain. And then he, in an instant, he can turn that wind and move it back. This is the same God who, in the mind of the Jewish nation, they understood that when they had enemies coming against them, if they were not victorious, it was because God was not with them. And so if you want God with you, and if you want your life to go well, what should they have done? They should have sought the Lord. Jehoshaphat did that. But Joram and Joram, it sounds like a business, you know, <laughs> Johnson and Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay, so that's very interesting. So it was an insightful observation. It should have been a more tender part of your homework. With all the other technical things that we have to look at, when you do these analytical observations of people and their lives and what's going on with them, it's a very a wonderful opportunity for us to be uh, introspective to start to say, you know, in my life, how do I see these things happening? When I am having um, an onslaught of my enemies, so to speak, around me, coming against me, and things seem to keep hammering me on the head, what is it that I am to do? That's exactly right. Get on your knees and start praying, just like Jehoshaphat did. Find out, God, what's going on here? What do you want from me? How do you want me to handle this? Ask God. Invite God into it. That's all God wants from us. It's all he ever wants from us. It's all he ever wanted from his nation. Please, just seek me. That's all I ask of you. Let me be your God. Seek me only. Do not turn to the right or to the left or to these other ways. But walk in my ways. My ways are good. And I have promised you a blessing, if you will. And so when we do that, then God blesses. So here we have these two kings. First, in 2 Kings 8, we see this very interesting man. When you hit the Shunammite woman and you, you hit that particular paragraph where he blessed her. This is the son of Ahab, and he blesses the Shunammite woman. Did you not scratch your head just a little bit? Did anybody even notice that? I mean, that, to me, that was like, whoa, that's interesting, this, this evil son of an evil man, and yet he blessed her. Funny. God's word is filled with some of the most interesting little nuances if you really stop to pay attention. All right, so we see now with Jehu in 2 Kings 9. Now let me just open to 2 Kings 9 with you guys. I just looked at my map here too. I wanted to share this with you because I don't know if you guys have done any looking or not. We've been having some conversations. Last week, by the way, uh, Susan and I and... Um, um, Anyway, somebody else. We had a conversation, and, we, and I got the, sh the women mixed up. One of the things that I just noticed 
um, when I was looking at Elijah and Elisha, the two prophets, right, of Israel, of the, of the north, they pretty much, their lives shadow one another. Did you guys realize that, how much they shadow one another? And that when one would do something, the other one did something very similar to the point that you can confuse them, and that's what I did. I confused the two women. Elijah had assisted a woman in Sidon, the Shunammite woman in, uh, what was the land that she's from, from, um, the Sh from Shunem, all right, where Shunem, it's, a, it's an Ephraimite, or I think is what it was from Ephraim. Okay, so one is a Gentile and one is a Jew. Did, I didn't catch that. See, that's where I got messed up. I mixed the two storylines. Both prophets brought a boy back to life of a woman, right? And both women came, uh, were underneath a prophet, but one was Elijah and one was Elisha, and I didn't distinguish that, and I got the two mixed up. So pay attention to, to that if you can. I had a chart, and now I've lost it, and I've got to go back and see if I can find it. Well, I found it in my research at one point. It came up on my thing, and I thought I printed it, and it's buried somewhere. I know I printed it, but it shows a parallel chart of Elijah and Elisha's uh, ministries. Um, I would love to take that now and develop it out and actually give myself a good list of the comparisons between the two men and the things that they did. But it is easy in our history look at these two nations, the, you know, the nation of Israel and this divided kingdom. But when we hit these stories of these people, their names are so much alike. They do so much the same stuff. It seems like, does it feel like we're doing this? We're just hitting the same story over and over. And it's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I'm just going insane trying to keep it all straight in my head. And it's almost an impossibility. The only way to really enjoy, I think, this study thoroughly is to just really try to find those personal application points of looking at their life and comparing it to your own life and saying, God, what are you showing me in the life of this? This, after all, in Romans 15, that verse 15, 4 that Kay always starts us off with, that says these things of old were written for our edification and encouragement, right? So that we are going to follow God and walk with God more faithfully. The whole point to him is that you learn from these things in the past. They are not, they're written so that we will do better, if you're smart enough to learn from someone else's mistakes, which would be the smart thing for us to do, right? All right, so in there I found a map then also because of the Shunammite Sidon situation that I got confused. One's a Gentile, one's a Jew. But yet the, the woman from Sidon is up in this area up in here, okay, on this map. Now if you look at my map, do you see this green section right here? This is the area that Israel had actually conquered while they were living on the land. Okay, I will have, send it to Lois and Lois will send it out to you so you'll have this map. But this is really helpful because it gets confusing when, for instance, the king of Tyre. Where was he? Over here on, the, on this coastline up here of, um, I'm not sure if it was in the land of Philistia or Phoenicia. Oh, it's Phoenicia. So he, Tyre is all the way up here at the top. But see, they hadn't conquered that land. So although it was the promised land, they had never conquered it. Okay, I know it doesn't. This map, I'm going to send it to you. I found this one just by God, <laughs> you know, bringing me to the right page. And it, it was very interesting. But this is, the title of the map was The Extent of the Conquest of the Promised Land. 
So this is the extent of it. But that helps you to understand why when we're talking so often about these different places that these prophets went and our kings went, it sounds like they're dealing with a foreign nation, and yet the, the place and the city that you're at looks like on the map you're in Israel, well, but they hadn't conquered it. So it still belonged to another nation and another king. And so there was this, this strange bedfellows going on. So Solomon goes to the king of Tyre and makes a, a covenant in order to bring down the cypresses of uh, um, the, the, the cedars of Lebanon to build the temple. Well, technically, Tyre should have been Israel's land, and they shouldn't have had to get it by any kind of, con of uh, alliance. Should have been able to just go and get it. But they hadn't conquered that land yet. So this helped me a lot when I saw this map. I went, well, that explains a lot. Because there's a lot more land than I realized. Um, all these coastal areas here, none of it, which explains, do you remember back when uh, Solomon went down over here to Edom and to get a, a ship port built, remember? So he could send ships out to go and get the, the gold of Ophrah and wherever these other places were, probably down in Egypt and so forth. Well, it's he went over here to get to the water because guess what? Do you see the water edge here? None of it was theirs. They had not conquered it yet. They had gone in, but they had not fully conquered it. Sometimes they would attain part of it, and then their enemies would come against them, and then they would lose it. Why? Why were they losing land? Because they weren't being obedient to God. That's right, Margaret. They weren't following the Lord, and so God kept taking the land away from them. So we see that same thing happen here. So in 2 Kings 9, how did you title 2 Kings 9? What were some of your titles? There's like two or three major points going on in chapter 9. Um, okay, the, the house of Ahab is what? Okay, the prophecy. And the prophecy for the house of Ahab was what? What was going to happen to it? They're going to be cut off. Do you remember how many times does God say in, the, in his promises of the cursings of the blessings, and if you don't do this, I will cut you off. I will cut you off the land. I will basically I'll cut you off. That term, cut you off, is used over and over in Scripture. So we see here Ahab's house is going to be cut off in chapter 9. So that's one of your titles for that chapter. Okay, and his house is cut off and then and who else is taken who else is dealt with and they're specific about her Jezebel Jezebel gets killed right now Jezebel's killing we went back and looked at some previous records on this had God had a word concerning Jezebel prior to this why Yes, Naboth, that's exactly right. So Naboth had a piece of land, and uh, her husband Ahab wanted it, and he couldn't get his, his sticky little fingers on it, right? And Naboth was being righteous and saying, no, I sh far be it from me that I would give away the, the allotted land that God gave to me. And it, I, basically, I have a responsibility to protect this, this piece of land that I was in, entrusted with and to um, not basically sell it off, right, which is... It's the most fundamental piece of their whole picture as a nation. And so when he wouldn't give it to her, then she did what? Had him killed. So the consequence of that was then God gave a word concerning Jezebel all the way back when that event happened, right? And the word about her was what? How, and how specific was the word? 
pretty nasty too, kind of like this other guy having his bowels come out of him and dying his horrible death, right? What was going to happen to Jezebel? Big time. You know, I have a hard time feeling sorry for her because she seemed to be just the most wicked of, you know, interesting uh, in history, it does seem like that sometimes women are much more vicious than men. And it really is interesting when you look at the history of things like that. So Jezebel did, um, had uh, Naboth murdered first by a false testimony, kind of made me think of Jesus when he went to trial and they put up false witnesses against him in order to convict him. They did the same thing with Naboth. And then in the end, Naboth is killed. And then she, uh, she says to Ahab, now get up and go and take possession of the land. Basically, be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, but because of what she did, God made this prophecy against her, and it was very specific. She, her, she was going to fall. Her, her blood would be spilled on a certain area, and then what would happen? The dogs would come and lick up her blood, and so forth. And so, in the end of the story, what what actually happened? Exactly. To the, and actually almost more in a more, more morbid way, huh? Um, when she was pushed out of the window, right, and fell to her death, um, the king was below, and what does he do? He tramples on her with his horse to make sure she's good and dead, I guess, if she wasn't already. Uh, insult to injury, that's to, putting it mildly, right? And then he goes, at that point, what does he do? Can you believe this? this? And now, who was this guy that did this? Jehu. Jehu is a um, is a new king that's coming up in a new bloodline for the king, for the kings of Israel, right? For the northern kingdoms. And Jehu, after trampling on this woman with his horse, very casually gets off his horse, goes inside, and enjoys a meal. And yeah, well, exactly. And then he says, "Okay, go mop up that." that wicked woman's mess, right? And when they went out to mop up the big mess, what? There was nothing left. Why? What had happened? The dogs had actually come and done exactly what God had said. Now, how precise is God's word? Interesting. And you know what's really um, another thing to, to ponder on just a little bit in this storyline is from the time when she committed this act of murder against Naboth until the time when she is judged, there's a, there's a pretty long period of time that's taken place. Uh, her her uh, husband has died, her son has come and gone, and now it's almost, he's almost getting at the end here and Jehu's about to come up. So it's been several years. I didn't look to see how many, but quite a few, right? And so, have you ever thought in your mind that it feels like God's not acting? That person did that thing, and they are, there's a woman who's a friend of mine in Celeste, who here in Austin was murdered by a man who, who they believe now was an up-and-coming serial killer. He had already killed a couple of other people here in Austin and had broken in. Well, her home was broken into, and she was murdered for no reason except to just murder her. There was no other motive. And to this day, he's still sitting in jail. They still haven't had a trial. Time is going on, and we're going, will justice ever be done? Will this guy ever get his just dessert? Right? 
you know what, Celeste could give you the specifics, but yes, she, and her, she had been the music teacher for Celeste. Right, that's right. And then her class went on. Her classes went on and did this performance, and her honor was real touching. And yeah, her name was Kathy. And so this guy killed her, and here he still sits. So this storyline of this Jezebel and her actions and her her instigating murder. We would call what would we call the second degree murder? Is that how we phrase it? Because she's one instigated. She didn't do the murder herself, but she set it up so he would be murdered. Right. Conspiracy is exactly what it is, and it's false witness, false testimony. But years went by. How many people around the kingdom do you think were hearing that storyline and going, that woman, she got away with killing righteous Naboth, my friend, my neighbor, the guy that lives down around the corner from me, right? They knew about it, and, and yet, and then what does she do? She goes on and lives her married life in the lap of luxury, Continuing to do even more things that are evil. We, does it feel like sometimes we live in a life that is unrighteous and unfair and, and God is not moving? And you think, God, where are you? Why are you not just like making a greasy spot out of these people? I think, thank God he didn't do that to me. <laughs> of course, I've never killed anybody, but you know, there have been moments <laughs> when I've considered, right? But I, I just think sometimes the unrighteousness, what does that make your heart do? Does it, make, does it make you long for the day when Jesus will come and he'll rule and reign? And we will see righteousness being executed from the throne. That he will come, he will be the king of kings on this earth. And all, every bow will, every knee will bow. We have a, a perspective, I think, sometimes on these events where when we're reading them in a, in a history book like this that we're detached from it, and so it just seems like, oh, you know, just moving on to the next story. But when you're living it and you're the one waiting for the day when that horrible person gets justice, or if you're the one who's in the midst of Really bad things that seems to just keep piling on. First comes the Philistines, then comes the Moabs, then come the Edomites, then come the, and and you're sitting there going, oh God, I do, you know, and you're shaking your fist at God. You and I would not do that, however, thank, thankfully, because we love the Lord. But though, but the world, as we watch our world around us, and they're shaking their fists and they're blaming God, they're blaming other people, they're blaming. You know, their situation, their upbringing, it's my mom's fault, it's my work's fault, it was, you know, I, I grew up poor, so it was, I had to steal in order to make, a, you know, make, it, make improvements in my life. I mean, they have all these justifications as to why their life is a mess. And what does God want from us? He just wants us to turn to him and say, God, what, what can I do? I can do nothing. But you know who can? There is nothing too difficult for the Lord. And as we look at this story of Jezebel and of Je the two Jehus, or Jehorams, right? And of Jehu, and of Jezebel, and of Ahab's life, and faithful little Jehoshaphat, right? We think of all these storylines and we think, Lord, you're there for every one of them, the good and the bad. You're available to every one of them, the good and the bad. Your word is not hidden from us. It's there. 
All we have to do is open it and look and read and see, Father, what is it you want from us? How might I um, live a life which pleases you and therefore I will be blessed, right? And, and it's not just that we're trying to attain good things for ourselves, but that we truly love the Lord and he's worthy of that. Think of the things that God has done for Israel at this point in history, where he's brought them from. The, if you go in the timeline all the way back to Abraham and, and the promise God to, gave to him, he was a single man with, with a wife whose womb was dried up. And God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And he took that man and he said, but know this, for 430 years, your people will be in captivity before I bring them to that land I'm telling you about. Wow. So our lives are not 430 years long, right? Our, our lives are a breath, 80 years maybe, 90, if we're lucky, 100 for some of us. And in the span of our lifetime, as we are drinking in the word of God and, and pondering these historical records of the things that God has given to us so that we might learn from them. For us, it's an important thing. I, I believe that what God, God's deepest heart's desire is just that we would remember that he is the sovereign of the universe. He's in the big and the small. Remember when we looked at the, the miracles? One of the miracles was about an ax head. I mean, talk about a small thing, right? And yet God was so concerned about that individual man and that little tiny problem that he had. And God did a miracle for that man's small problem to be resolved. And yet it's the same God who, who is the master of the universe. All he wants from you is your heart. And when we look at the grand conclusion of every one of these king's lives, what is God's analysis of them? It's one of two things, right? They did evil or they did good. And if they, if they were faithfully and if they walked faithfully in the sight of the Lord, walking entails a lot though. That's a, it's a one word, but it's a huge, a huge picture, right? Walking is your entire, your life is your walk. So your whole life, are you walking faithfully with God? When God, at the end of your storyline, will, will your, I, I, you know, I almost think it'd be kind of cool. Uh, to put that on a headstone, she walked faithfully with the Lord. She did good or she did right in the sight of the Lord. And if that's the end of your story, well done. And that's where we should be headed. So these, these technical stories of all these details of all these things that are happening historically, they're so interesting. But at the very end of it all, it, there, there is... There is simply one thing, and what does God say about your life? Does he say you did well, or does he not? Does he say you did evil? And what we are seeing right now in the big picture, kings of uh, Israel, the north, what kind of kings have we seen? Evil. How many of them are evil so far? All of them are evil. Now, that makes life easier for us. Thank you, Lord, right? Now, the kings of Judah, what do we see? Some good, some bad. There's actually more bad than good, but there's some good and some bad. 
we already know the end of the, of the history, what happens with Israel at the end. What happens in the end to this nation? They are, they are judged. Because in the end, they're not able to walk faithfully with God. And so God does exactly as he said. God is a God of, of faithfulness to his word. One of Kay's questions to us this week was, um, how sure is the word of God? She was asking it in relationship to Jezebel's story, I think it was. I think that's when she asked us that question. But when you thought about that, were, th were there like a gazillion verses that popped into your mind about the, the sureness of God's word? When... I thought of, I think there's one in Numbers that says, does God speak and then not act? That's a question. And the answer is, absolutely. He is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should lie, right? And he, when he speaks, he does act. And whatever he has said, he will do. Not one word will fall. Every word that come, proceeds out of the mouth of God will be fulfilled. Everything he has said is true, and one of the most, to me, the ex most exciting things about doing inductive Bible study is how over and over and over we are shown that when God says something, he does it, that everything he has said is absolutely truth. So one of the things I did this week, extra over and beyond, was I did a little bit of digging in some of the history. And for those of you who are on my Facebook page, you already know about this. But there's a black obelisk of Shalemanser III that has been found. And it, was, it is on display in the museum in England. And I, you'll get a picture of it. But on this, hold on a second. Let me find my other chart. I think it's on here. It's better. It's on my chart. Okay, so the, let me just read it. It says, it's an archaeological find that depicts Jehu, king of Israel, bringing tribute and prostrating himself before the Assyrian king whom he made an alliance with. We're ready to talk about chapter 10, and we're going to talk about this Jehu. And what, when the world would have made Jehu get to a place where he was willing to prostrate himself before a, the king of Assyria. Is this the first time, however, that Israel has done something like this? Absolutely not. Israel has been notorious for uh, making these alliances with other, king other kingdoms. And what did God told them to do? Do not do that. So every time you see them making an alliance, your, your biblical training at this point should have been, should be at this point to say, whoa, he shouldn't have done that. And I'm telling you, there are going to be teachers that you're going to sit under who are going to make it sound like that was normal, that was fine, that was acceptable in the day, and they all did it. Well, guess what? That's true. But it doesn't make it not wrong, right? Because God gave them very specific instructions. You shall not make covenants with people of other nations. In particular, he said in Deuteronomy 7, when you enter into the land, do not let your sons marry their daughters. Do not let your daughters marry their sons because if they do, what will happen? They're, they will draw your hearts away from loving me. Now, what ha who are the two people we have of perfect examples of that happening? One is Solomon, and now who's our second one? Jehoram. Jehoram, who married the, the daughter of 
Ahab. What happened, of course, his heart didn't have to be drawn too far because obviously his heart wasn't sold out for the Lord anyway. But in the end, who influenced him? That was another point that Kay brought out to us. His wife had a great, his wife had a great influence on him. And then the son that follows, who is Ahaz, Ahaz, Azahiah, there you go. Ahaziah. So when Ahaziah became king, his mom now, who is this offspring also of, of, um, of Jezebel, Jezebel's daughter, right? So his mom is influencing him. In the end, in chapter 10, we're going to look here and see if the intrigue that happened because of this, this influence of people in your life. What You looked at um, 1 Corinthians, um, uh, what was it, like... 1533 or something like that, right? What did, it, what, was it, what did it say in there? Yeah. How many times have I quoted that one? Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, the way my mother would also have said it is, birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> so, so you know what? If you hang out with them, you're probably just like them. That's kind of the way that is. You, you tend to find people to spend your time with that you agree with and that you like and that you have similar, which is, shows us why we have, you know, basically two parties in our political system because you have same ideology, same, uh, at least similar, and you tend to end up in one camp or the other politically, right? So the same thing is true in the, in the world we're in. Who's going to influence you? What, what are some of the things you learned about how you get influenced according to those scriptures? Do you have your list in front of you? The word counsel was one word that she had us mark, and it showed that Ahaziah was being counseled by who? By his mom. When? What, what had happened that caused him to, it says, in the, his dad died. So when his dad died, who was the, the one that was having all the influence on him? His mom. So it's very, very subtle. But we know that he, the dad, Jehoram, was not a good guy either, right? Nothing good was said about him in all the things that were written. But, but when he died, then the mom became the counselor. Why do you think, what do you think the subtlety is in that statement? And in the end, what happens? She does become one of the rulers. She becomes the only queen in Israel ever recorded, right? And so we see that, but it also kind of indicates an interesting thing because that word council was brought up in there, and we looked at the word council, and we, we went all the way back and looked at um, Rehoboam when he took bad counsel, right, from his younger friends. Well, in this particular account, we see that... that it says that when dad died, then mom is the one that began, began to counsel him and also the house of Ahab. So it tells you that as bad as Jehoram Jer was, right? Joram was, as bad as he was, Athelia was what? Even worse. And so he began to take his counsel from her, and that's what got him into big trouble. Right? So what happened in that particular story? That this is in 1 Kings 10. Or 2 Kings 10, rather. I'm sorry. 2 Kings 10. Pardon? Okay. Let's go into 2 Kings 10. 
we see in that we, we already looked at the other one where, where we saw um, the title in nines. We saw Jehu anointed king of Israel. Ahab's house was cut off. And we saw Jezebel being killed, right? So we've talked about that. And we've done a pretty good job, I think, of covering those major points on what was going on there. And we looked at the two kings, the, the two Jorams of, the, of each kingdom. And both of them were bad right? Even though their backgrounds were different, they still both ended up being bad because neither one of them would follow the Lord, right? And so in the end, what we saw when you're doing your chart on your comparing to see, one of the, the center aisle on that chart is to say who are their enemies. And what we see is then these enemies kept coming up against. And whenever there's an enemy coming up against Israel, what is that an indicator to us about? Judgment by God. God is displeased with the way that they are carrying and acting things out, right, as a nation. Why is that? Why do you think God cares how they were acting as a nation? Thank you, Susan. Exactly. The whole point, why did God birth the nation to begin with? That they would be a light in the world to who Yahweh was so that humanity globally would come to know him and admire him and love him and want to worship him and come into faith in him. And so they were to be the, the magnet, basically, that draws people to God. And when they were not walking in righteousness, they were representing God poorly. And so because they dishonored God, you remember the end of the story um, uh, earlier, I can't remember, it must have been about three, uh, two weeks ago, but they had this big battle, and at the end, the father comes and takes his only son, his son who was going to take the throne, it was the king of uh, Moab, I think it was, and he sacrificed his son on the wall, and God says, and great wrath came against Israel for that. Why? Well, the story before that was God had said through, the, through Elijah to them, I'm going to basically give you this battle, and this is what I want you to do. And remember, that's when they had the visions, the other, the, other, uh, the um, uh, Moabs are, were looking out in the field, and they saw what they thought was water, and the, the, it looked like blood to them, and it was all deception on God's part to confuse the enemies. And God had said, basically, I'm giving it this land to you and when you go in you're to do these certain things and one of them had to do with throwing rocks in the land and and tearing down all the trees all the vegetation things that they could eat right and when he got to the very last city they didn't do it they stopped what did that do for God's glory in the world at that point I mean when when the when the other nations are looking on and Israel has approached all the way to the very edge then they don't step into it what ah, ha 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 your God can't do it look at there the king of this nation that you went against he's still there he's still ruling and his God won because he sacrificed his son to him and his God won look he's still there in the end that particular king um, he actually made an alliance with him and then left him we have a God who wants us to fully obey him, not partially, not, not sort of, and in, to some degree, yes, I'll obey you over here, but in this part of my life, I'm not going to. Or when God says, do this, you go, okay, but you only go up to the very edge and you just barely do it. I always think of that verse that says, and whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. And to me, the idea of doing something heartily is fully, completely, right? And 
we see examples with this nation where they did things, but in that one case, one time, of all the times they did it, one time they almost obeyed God, but then, but then they didn't. And so God brings wrath upon them. So here we are now in chapter 10. Um, this storyline is very interesting because this is showing you the heart of our new king that's on the scene for us, and his name is Jehu. Jehu also comes from a Jehoshaphat, but I want to make sure you understand, who is he not? Who is this Jehoshaphat not? It's not the good king Jehoshaphat of Israel. So do not get that confused when it says Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat. I know, it threw me off too for a while. I kept getting so confused. And then what was bad is I'd go on and do other stuff, and then I'd come back, and then I'd see it again, and then I'd get confused again. I just, it's hard. These names, because the names are so similar, you have to really keep yourself a good list going. Um, coloring things in color, co coordinating things. I've done red for one and green for the other. That has been very helpful. Um, and in this case, Jehu is king of which nation? Israel, the north. Jehoshaphat, the good king Jehoshaphat, was king of which nation? Judah. So when it says Jehu's dad was... Uh, and he gives the lineage and saying that his dad's name was Jehoshaphat, it's not the same, it's not even the same kingdom. That Jehoshaphat, they said, was the son of Nimshi. Can yeah. you remind me who? I don't know. Because I, I looked and looked. And I did too. I, I looked. There's really nothing there, which tells you there is no, there is no significant interest in him. He just shows up on the scene. In other words, God simply called him out to be the next king. Now, why did God call out Jehu? What was Jehu's function? What kind of a tool was he in the hand of God? He was. He was a commander of the army. That's what he brought him up. So he was brought up specifically because he was a warrior man, right? And what was he commissioned to do according, we, we saw it in Chronicles, in most clearly, Second uh, Chronicles 22, I think it was. Look in Second Chronicles 22, verse 7, 7 and 8. When Jehu was brought in, he's the son of Nimshi in verse 7, what had God, what was his purpose in God's hand? Isn't that interesting? Did you find that interesting that God actually anoints someone to go and kill someone? <laughs> interesting. And in the end, Jehu, however, what kind of guy was he? Me too. Man, he was cleaning up. And then he pooped out again. It's the same storyline as the other one where, they, where God said, go and do this, and I will give you this victory. And they did it all the way up to the very last city and then stopped. Yes. I know. I know. So Margaret, you and me both. I know. I'm, and I, I just think, Okay, so again, just like the two Jehorams, where there's at least the Jehoram of the king of Israel, he had some good in him, it seems like. There were some things that he did right. We see Jehu, same thing. He shows up, God called him out, gave him an anointing and a specific commissioning to go and basically wipe out the house of what? Ahab. So in an Interesting thing is, that's when all these tangled up verses, I don't know how messy you guys' observation worksheets are, but mine are so confused that I can hardly even sort it out at first, because especially back there in um, 
Second uh, Kings, where Ahaziah and Joram come together. They end up in the same place, and they're in battle against this uh, king, and then they both end up dead, right? But you don't get the whole story until you go into Chronicles and, and, and weave it in. So what was going on here with, with this is that God had called up a king named Jehu, and he said to Jehu, I am anointing you to cut off the house of, of Ahab. And why is he cutting off the house of Ahab? Because of the horrible sins of Ahab and his bloodline. Everything that man touched was bloody. And he, had t he was such an evil man. And his wife was ten times even worse, I think, than he. And so God's in, in that first initial prophecy. God had actually prophesied against both Ahab and his wife. But did you not find it interesting that God had a specific prophecy against the wife? In, in specific. I mean, usually in these storylines that we've looked at so far, it's about that king, right? It's all about the king. But in this case, the wife got brought in. She got highlighted, to the, not in a good way, right? She didn't get put up on a pedestal because she did a good thing. But she got actually got, is the only one in this storyline so far where he actually highlighted a woman in the storyline and said, in his prophetic word against that house of Ahab, he identified Ahab and I'm going to do this and Jezebel, I'm going to do this right? So now we're in chapter 10, and we see these two, these two um, kings of Judah and Israel. Now, what is their relationship to one another? Have you figured that out yet? They're not only friends. They're also related. What, and what is the relationship? What is uh, Ahaziah, or what is um, the uncle? So it's his uncle because he's a brother to, uh, to his mom. His mom's brother is the king in, in, in Israel. Now, he is the, he is the, his dad has now died, so he's come up and taken his place. So it's his uncle is ruling in Israel in the north. He's ruling in the south. And because they're blood-related, now what happens is when, the, when Aram comes against the kings of, Jew, of Israel, what does he, he feel like he has to do? He has to go and help him out. And, he, and it simply states it in the scripture as he asked him to come and help, right? Well, of course he would. It's, just, it's like, this is like the Hatfields and the McCoys. They're, you know, there's a feud and there's the bad guy and the good guy. And you're part of my family, my clan. So he calls on his nephew and says, nephew, come help me, right? And so he does. And then when his uh, uncle gets hurt on the battlefield, and he goes to Jezreel to recover, what does uh, Ahaziah do? He goes to visit him in his sickbed. Does that even make sense to you? Absolutely. Because it's his uncle. Oh my gosh, my uncle's hurt. I got to go see him. He's very, apparently very close to his uncle, sure seems like. So what is God doing in all this in the, in the meantime? Jehu is raised up. Jehu is told, go in and destroy the house of Ahab. So these two men have been brought into the same proximity of one another to battle together. One of them is ill. Now they're, quote, away from the battlefield. Now, what does that also tell you that they're away from? Well, we know they're, yes. But when you're in battle, who's around you? All your warriors, right? All... There you go. Now they're in a vulnerable place. They've got, they have retreated to go to a place in Jezreel where he's recouping from his injuries. 
Now, both of these kings and apparently some of their other family members have all shown up. Now, it's a family reunion. Everybody's there because poor um, uh, Jehoram is, has been hurt on the battlefield. So they're all there to, to nurture him. And so now here comes Jehu, whose God has anointed to come and wipe out the house of Ahab. How convenient is that? Now they're both in the same location. They're in a vulnerable state. One of them's been injured. They're kind of off the battlefield, although I'm sure they have some warriors with them, but still, they're not, in a, they're not at war. It's not the quite, it's quite the same thing because they're, they're in this place where he's re, recouping from this injury. So then Jehu comes up against him. He's got them both basically right where he wants them. Who do you think did that? The Lord. So now Jehu comes in and he kills both of these men. And then what proceeds after that? He, boy, does, when Jehu's given an order, does he seem to be thorough? Now, of all the people in all these storylines who've been given instructions to do things, seems like people kind of skirt the fence. They get up to a certain point. They're only doing half-heartedly what God has asked them to do, if that, or not even believing God at all concerning the things that God has said. But here, Jehu, who is this commander of the army, and he's a warrior man, and you can imagine he's bullish and brash and, you know, kind of a you know, what do you call him, a bull in a china closet. He shows up, but what does he do? Man, he gets to work. He is, he is slating. So now we have 70 sons who are in Samaria of Ahab. What happens there? Uh-huh. I'm looking to see where my outline is on all this here. Hold on a second. Okay. So we're in 2 Kingston. Um, in, verse, in 2 Kings 10, 1 to 9, that's where we're at. I'm sorry, I found it. <laughs> we have 70 sons of Ahab. They're in Samaria. I think it was very interesting, though. Jehu, he sets up this whole, he orchestrates kind of a coup, basically, that's going on, or a, or a plot, right, in order to kill all these people. And when he does it, he politically puts these people who are guarding the sons of Ahab in a position where they know they're going to lose, right? Because their response is, look, this Jehu just killed two kings. Who are we? that we could even go up against him, right? So what do these men do, and, and how are they identified? They're, they're guardians of, of, of these are grandchildren. <laughs> yes, these are the children and grandchildren of, of this royal bloodline of Ahab. These men, they called them the mighty men, which tells you that they are there for protection and that they have a high position, probably. Um, but the key word to me was guardian. They were guardians and nurturers. They were nurturing them or raising them, right? And what did they do? They, tur they turned around and slaughtered them because they were afraid of Jehu, correct? At the end of that sentence, do you see what Jehu says? The very last verse on that page. Yeah, yes. Very interesting to me because remember, Jehu went in and he killed the two kings, yes. And, and some of those others that were there with him. But when it came to these 70 children, 
Who actually did the killing? Their own guardians did it. He put the blood back on their head, even though he did put them in a position that was a no win. What should the guardians have done if they were righteous men? D fought to the very end, just like Masada. They should have died with the kids if they had to. But they should have protected those children's life with their own life to the very end. So Jehu puts this back on them, rightfully so. If you didn't catch that, I thought it was very interesting that he says this. But he's saying basically, on my hands are the blood of these two kings of Israel, the north and the south. But these 70 children, their blood is on you. You did this, not me. I, I set up the circumstance, granted. He, he did. But these men were not righteous men. They did not do what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to. I don't know about you guys. We're all grandmas, most of us in here, right? Well, except for Sarah, <laughs> who's a youngster still. But think, think, yeah, we have a grandpa. How many of us in here would ever allow one of our grandchildren to be taken by an enemy? How many of us would take a, a, a machete and chop off their head and throw it in a bucket and deliver it to an enemy? What does that tell you about this family and these people? Unbelievable. But I liked the fact that Jehu put that back on them. I've, heard some, I've read some of the commentaries that talk about how horrible Jehu was. That He went further than the Lord's command on the things that God had asked him to do. That's, I do not interpret that, this account in that way at all. What I see is Jehu's showing them they had a responsibility to be guarding those children, and he's putting it back on them. They had that responsibility. And anybody who really loves their children, their grandchildren, or who is put in a position of, of responsibility for children, you go down with the ship. You don't hand them over like these people did. So he is absolutely correct. Their, the blood of those 70 is on their heads. And then the next piece of the story is the lovely picture of who? Baal. Right? And what does he do concerning Baal? What does Jehu do? Oh, yeah, he does. You're right. He says he leaves no survivor. Uh, first in, in Samaria, that's in verses 1 to 9. And then in 10 to 14, he leaves no survivor in Jezreel. So he is progressively going through the land. And anywhere he finds a group of them gathered, he wipes them out. He makes sure that the, blood the bloodline of Ahab, as God commanded, is utterly de uh, destroyed. So he actually is being... Think about a general and his role, his job as a general. What is a general's job to do in their thinking? You're given a mission and you do what? You execute it. And you don't question and you don't, you don't deviate from it. You do what the, whatever is the mission that's been handed to you. You absolutely and fully carry it out, period. That's the mindset of a Jehu. So Jehu, who is a commander, has gone in, and he is systematically doing exactly what God told him to do. That, that part is, is another storyline, and we could actually do a whole other lesson about that. Was he righteous or unrighteous in doing that? And the, you know, in my mind, I would say he's still righteous because they... What, what does scripture say about bad company? Yeah. Who are you keeping bad company? And if you have a really close friend 
Close friends sometimes are thicker than blood in some ways. What's going to happen with those close friends when they see that all their people that they really love and admire are now dead? They're going to want revenge for their sake, correct? So he was smart in taking out anyone that was closely affiliated with that family for the sake of not having any revenge come back up. The other thing is, birds of a feather are flocking together. That means that, you know, whatever Ahab and his family is like, guess who those friends are? They're the same way, basically. That is generally the, the way the rule of thumb is, right, of, of life. So when he went in and they're, they're an associate with him, the problem would be strategically just, you know, in, a, in logistic thinking on this, if he showed up and he goes, are you a family member? Whack. You're not? Okay, stand over here and just watch. It's not going to happen, right? So he goes in and he kills them all because he, he really was put into that position. And I, I, at that point, go, the sovereignty of God was in, at work in that. God had those people there for a reason. And since Jehu was going in and systematically wiping these people out, if they were there and present at the time, unless the Lord had impressed it upon him to not do so. And at the end of all this, what does God say about Jehu's work that he did? There you go. See, so God actually said, you did well. Now, where did he not do well? Yes, because although he, he went to a certain point, and the thing that follows the slaughtering of the house of Ahab and their acquaintances, the few that were in there weren't a lot, but the few that were there, they were put to death too. God says of that, you did exactly what I wanted you to do. And for that, I'm going to reward you. So if there had been unrighteousness in that, God would have, I think sectioned that out and said, because you did this to these people, I'm gonna all, there's going to be a consequence. But he never said that. He said, you executed this mission well. He's a general. He went in. This was the mission plan, and he did it. And he did it thoroughly. And he did, unlike the previous mission where the people were out in that field and were attacking, and they went up to the last city and then quit, did Jehu do that? No. He thoroughly accomplished God's work and word. He did everything that the Lord told him thoroughly. So God, and God commends him for that and rewards him for that. Now, the, the other thing that Jehu does that I thought was interesting because it wasn't on the agenda that I understand. He goes to the next step, though, and then he, and he, interesting is he wipes out what Baal worship it says he eradicates it I use that in my title because I like that word he eradicates it so when he eradicates the Baal worship why do you think he did that as well as handling the house of Ahab bingo where did Baal worship come from to begin with how did it get into Israel through through Jezebel who was a Phoenician and brought it down in. Right. And so when he eradicated the house of Baal, the worship of Baal had become so associated with the house of Ahab that they were almost one in the same. So when he eradicated the, the, the royal bloodline of Ahab, he also took care of the spiritual bloodline of Ahab. Because this was the spiritual children of Jezebel. And I do think, I'm not positive, but I think I, have, I can remember some verses where it talks about Jezebel and these are her children. The children of Jezebel. And I think she's, re, she's even brought up in the letter to um, the seven churches. Isn't she Jezebel? I'm, I want to go and look at that. But again, it shows a spiritual birthing of children. 
right, through this Baal worship that she brought in and she introduced into Israel. And so when he eradicated the house of Israel, the bloodline, he also eradicated the spiritual house of, of Ahab. Interesting. Kind of a neat concept to think of it that way, huh? Because uh, I was pondering on that myself uh, when I first kind of came across it. I'm going, but God didn't tell him to take care of the Baal worship. Wasn't that nice of him to go over and beyond the, the uh, bounds of duty? But I don't think he did. I think he actually did more than what was technically said, but he did the spirit of the message of God. The spirit of God's word was eradicate this man and all that he has done, all the influence that he's had on my, fa my faith and my children, right? And so that's what he does. So he goes in, he wipes out, he eradicates the Baal worship. And I think it didn't, didn't it say, and to this day, it's gone, right? I loved that. Okay. Pardon? I love that. I do love that. And he, he took their, their, their very altar where they would worship this Baal, and they made it a toilet. I just think that's so funny. Oh, good sense of humor here in this. Okay. But so now we got Jehu. Man, Jehu's high on my attaboy list, right? Way to go, Jehu. Then you hit verse 28. After 28, you start in 29 to 31, and what happens? Now you find out that although he did this, so it kind of makes you wonder, what do you think Jehu's reason was for doing what he did do? Do you think his motive was because he really loved the Lord and he wanted to honor God? Even though there's some subtle things said in here, it sounds like that's what he's doing. Come and see how fierce I am for the Lord, right, to his new buddy that he makes along the way. This guy is kind of interesting, and we'll have to do some more work on him, but... Uh, this friend that he brings into his carriage and takes with him. And, and we have very little insight about him at this point, but we'll, hopefully we'll get more later, maybe. Or maybe he's a passing thing, who knows. But um, he, he makes it sound like he's just so, such a warrior for the Lord, right? But yet, what, is, what happens when he's done with all this? He goes he back to the golden calf. You, yeah, me too. You and me should do Bible study together because you and I would be, we have a wild time, wouldn't we? Jehu did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. So, again, if you want to analyze Jehu and his personality and who he was as a man and analyze this a little bit, you can see, I think, that his motive was not really pure. Although the Lord had anointed him and then did God work through him, Yes, but did he have a pure heart in what he was doing for the sake of God? It didn't seem like it. Because in the end, although he eradicated the Baal worship and he eradicated the house of Jehu, he did that probably for his own political purposes. That's right, and he did not depart from it. Interesting, so now he, we have this set up in this this. Uh, unfolding saga, then at the very end of this, we have this really interesting picture. The king of Aram, what happens with the king of Aram? What does the king of Aram do in 32 to 36? I'm sorry, Sarah, I couldn't hear you. Yeah, okay, so again, we're back to land being repossessed, right, or taken away from them. So again, what does that tell us? What's happening? What's happening if land's being taken away? 
punishment from God. So now we got God's judgment coming on. I don't know if you guys did this, look at this or not. And I found one place that gave me the total name of this area. He took from him the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the uh, Rebanites, the Masonites, from Aor, which is by the valley of Aran, uh, Bilad, and Bashan. And this equals the Transjordan. I thought that was interesting because then when I did that search on this obelisk, the black obelisk that they found, it's an archaeological dig find that they found on this um, time period in history. In here it says it depicts Jehu, king of Israel, bringing tribute and prostrating before the Assyrian king whom he had made an alliance with. Now, why would he make an alliance with the king of Assyria um, when you see um, a ram coming against him? Yeah, so he made he basically made a covenant with Assyria to be a buddy to him to keep them from doing what? Taking more of their land than they already had. They took a very large portion of it called the Transjordan, which I thought was interesting because on that map, again, the Transjordan would be all, I think, is this area over in here. Am I wrong? Does anybody know maps well enough to know? I think they ended up taking all this and they never got that land back. And so he lost so much of his land. He, at one time, Israel had command of land that came all the way down into Ammon and Moab area. And that area is called the, I think that's called the Transjordan. I might be wrong, but, but I'm, you know. Oh, I am right. Okay, good. And so, and so what happened is at this time in history, because Jehu did what God told him to do, then he was good, but then when he turned around and did not give up the worship of Jeroboam, which was the golden calves, then God brought this enemy of a ram against him. They took possession of a bunch of their land, and he was losing a lot of it. And you saw the list. I don't know if you made a list on it or not, but it's like they kept mentioning area after area after area. And in the end, they, he, they, the Aram, uh, Arameans took this whole area of Uh, called the Transjordan, out of his possession. And so he had to make an alliance with the king of Assyria in order to stop the onslaught of his land being taken away. So that's where we're at at this point with Jehu. He is uh, a very interesting historical figure who shows up in in this um, lineage of these kings of, of Israel. He's not of the bloodline of Ahab, obviously. He's destroyed that bloodline. And what we see here now is he has to make a covenant again with another foreign king of another nation, all because why? He won't obey God or worship him. Even it, you know, God told him that he, he was going to punish him. I mean, he had a chance to repent. Yes. And Jehu had done so many good things. I mean, he was he was moving along and in reward for good things like the Baal, Baal whatever you the Baal worshippers, uh huh. Whatever that thing is, anyway. And, and you know, and he could have repented. I mean, you know. Absolutely, it almost they almost set you up to when you're studying this. Did you guys not at some point think, oh, this is cool? Jehu is a good guy. Yeah. He looked like he's going to be a good king in Israel. 
Yeah, exactly. Almost like Solomon kind of, you know, he loved the Lord except, you know. Well, it seems like because it says he had zeal for the Lord, right? He was, he was passionate for God and he was doing these. So he, it's like he tried to do things right for the Lord and then he, and then he fell short. The problem is I would, what that tells me is he wasn't doing it really for the Lord. He, I think he had personal gain in doing what he did. He did. Have you ever known a person in in your church experiences who who seems to follow God to a degree, and they do it because it gives them something in return that they like? Either um, it gives them a social network that they like, people that seem to be friendly and her kind. And in particular, we, we had an experience even in Turkey when one of my maids, uh, she was claiming to be a Christian and she was Tur- Turkish and Islamic, of course. She was claiming to be a Christian so that she could get hired by Christians on the military base. And then she'd come in and then she'd show up for work. She wouldn't work. She'd make a mess in my kitchen. She'd lay on the couch. She, I came home one day and she had my kids, my three and four-year-old locked outside of the house and she was asleep on the couch. Oh, yeah. Well, I fired her very quickly. But see, she was working off the good graces of people who were saying, well, because you're a Christian, right? So she had come in and kind of played the game. I kind of see Jehu is, is, is at least in a scriptural um, way as we read about him. It almost looks like he is a Christian. He says he's doing stuff for the Lord, but was he? No. In the end, it's God says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So although he did a good work for God, so what does that tell you then about God's work in his house, in the church today? Can sometimes bad people actually come in and do good things for God's people in the church? Absolutely. Can God use evil people to accomplish really good things? Yes. I mean, this is crazy, isn't it? Doesn't it, isn't it get confusing? Because then what's required of you and I then in, when we're dealing with people? You have to use discernment. Does that person really love God or are they playing a game? Are they here because it benefits them for some other reason? Or do they really ha- are they really sold out for God and are they really committed in their faith walk to the Lord? And with Jehu, what we see at the end of his life is no, he wasn't. Apparently, this campaign he went on, and yes, God anointed him to do it. Yes, God gave him the instructions, and he, he didn't just do it. He did it thoroughly. He did it more thoroughly, maybe even than a person whose heart was really for the Lord because we have compassion in our heart. Maybe we wouldn't have done it even as thoroughly as he did. He did it as a soldier, as a soldier purely. And I think that because he also knew he, he had been anointed to become the next king, he had aspirations for that throne. And he wanted to eradicate anything that would come up against him once he took the throne. He lived in a time and an era when he understood political affiliations and connections. He understood the loyalties of these people in the world. He wanted to have full control. I think that was it. He was a general and he wanted full control. And so what did he do? He thoroughly executed God's command. In a way, God chose the perfect man to do the job, right? Gee, gee, wow, isn't that a surprise that God would actually pick the perfect guy to actually do the job, right? The, the one um, who, who raised um, the AI who became queen, was she a descendant of Ahab? 
I don't know who you're talking about. I'm no, sorry. Um, a, the, the, Ahaziah? The, yeah, Judah king. You know, when he died, you said that uh, his son or whoever came up. Okay, so it was Jehoram and his son was Ahaziah. And when he died, mm -hmm. you said then Jehu came in. His mother. Oh, yeah, Athelia was there for a while, yeah. What, was she a descendant of Ahaziah? Yes, she was the daughter that married so Jehoram. Not yet. No, it doesn't show her being killed yet. Mm -mm. Was the descendant, whoever finally reigned after her? Was Jehu, and he, and he. I mean, of Judah. Yeah. Okay. He's eradicating all, but Athelia got, you're right, I don't know. Athelia seems to have slipped through for a period of time, and she's in the, the south in Judah. And so she rules, but for a short period of time, and then then there'll be another king after her eventually. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet, so we don't know how that storyline is. We don't know that, if that next one has. Uh, we're going to find out because that's our homework next week. Okay. <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> and trust me, I'm having a hard enough time just keeping hold of where we're at. I'm not ready to try to figure out the next. This is the craziest stuff. Yes, we are done. Thank you. I am. So thankful for you guys hanging in there with me today. Thank you. You guys did good. We'll see you next week. Yes, God willing.